Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggy-O's. Hello again, peoples of the internet. Thanks for tuning in to Riff Raff. You know, what is it about Texas? The cliche, something in the water, definitely applies to this place, man. I mean, think about all the great guitar players that have come from Texas. Like, a lot of great musicians, period. But guitar players, I mean, Billy Gibbons, Eric Johnson, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Here you have Jimmy Vaughan. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of other people that I'm sure I'm leaving out, but one at the top of that list is David Grissom. You know, David's a really versatile, eclectic player. He's got a great style. He's known for getting killer guitar tones. He's also a composer. He's written a lot of songs for people, too. Um, does sessions. and known him for a long time. It's happy to get him on the, on the podcast, and he was more than happy to do it. So I think you'll enjoy this one. Uh, let's see, it was a day in Austin, and I got up early in the morning and met David at his house. He was so accommodating, and these are getting earlier and earlier, it seems. I'm just trying to pull these off, spur of the moment. But in this one, we talk about a lot of cool things. He talks about John Cougar, who he played with for a long time. And he talks about Joe Ely. That was like one of his first gigs when he got to Austin. I didn't know he played with Lucinda Williams, too. He talks about that. A lot of good things. I won't give it away yet. But uh, but thanks again for your comments. It seems like actually a lot of you guys are listening because I keep getting more and more comments and reviews, which, which is really great. It keeps inspiring me to make more. Um, I talked to Sonny Landreth this morning. I think he's going to be the next guest. So I'm hoping to pull that off. Yeah, I'll keep making them as long as uh, you guys keep listening. So enjoy. This one has a little bonus material at the end. There's a thing where I plugged into David's one of his rigs, and he goes through his pedal board while I'm playing, and he just kind of hits little pedals. I was testing stuff out. It's kind of neat. I didn't want to throw it away, so it's going to be on the end, the very end, if you want to check that out. All right, so it was a fairly early morning for a musician in Austin, and... Um, Walk up to David's driveway into his studio. Beautiful spot. It's got some great guitars, all kinds of stuff, killer amps and things. I plug into an old Tweed Deluxe of his through his pedal board, and he plugs into another rig into his PRS amp. He's got another Marshall setup too. And we just take it off, man. I start playing this little riff. 
I tried to pan myself to the right, and he's on the left, but you'll hear him coming a mile away. Hope you enjoy. Time. It's been a long time. All right. I am sitting here in Austin, Texas with David Grissom. Man, it has been a long time. And thanks for uh, making the time. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. I mean, yeah. uh, I have to say that the idea of us uh, sitting down and playing guitars at 1030 in the morning is sort of a, it would have been a, uh, a very foreign idea 10 I years know, ago. Right? But, uh, it's, it's kind of still nice a foreign to... idea, but you have to take a while you can get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. But it's fun. It's a good way to get your blood pumping yeah. in the morning. It's great to see you. Great to see you, man. Looking great. You know, it's. I saw you. When was it? Uh, we were just talking about two years ago in Montana. We sort of passed in the night. It there. was really brief. We yeah. didn't really get to chat. But yeah. I want to tell the listeners. I first met you. Gosh, what was it? Late nineties. We were touring together. BB King Blues Festival. BB King. You were with Storyville. We yep. probably did. Five weeks. shows together? Five Pro- weeks. Wow. Probably five yeah. nights a week, at least. Man, it seems like a lifetime ago. I know. I know. It really does. I have a picture of us together back then, because I, uh, you know, I was a fan of yours, and I remember all of a sudden we're like in catering together, and I go, wow, man, Dave, because that was my first real touring gig, you know, yeah. where we, like, all of a sudden yeah. I was with people that I looked up to, you know, and I remember hanging with you. It was a great, it was a uh, Neville's, B.B., Dr. John and yeah. Storyville. Storyville, yeah. That was a great band, man. 
it was it was a good band uh, it, we were sort of uh before our time in a way and not necessarily groundbreaking musically but uh, we did a reunion gig in in 2006 and did a live DVD and I think we sold more copies of that DVD than we ever did of any of our records I mean it still sells it's crazy and like half of the email I get is why don't you put Storyville back together and I'm really I'm like god where were you guys you know where were you guys i'm like you know i mean it's a great band but that was then this is now yeah um, one of the funniest memories i have of that tour is we played some gig i don't remember where it was but it was just like you know a, one of the smaller venues outdoors and the stage was really small and everything was real self-contained and we finished our set and dr john came up and just goes Guys are way too loud. He said way that? too loud. Really, yeah, Doctor John? I'm like, oh man, I was crushed. You know, he must have been joking, man. He wouldn't say anything. I think he was like serious. He really? said, too damn loud. Too really? damn loud. Yeah, that's funny, man. But other than that, it was a blast. I got BB. You know, actually, got BB to sign a 335. I was playing at the time, and uh, yeah, he was. I was. You know, probably one of the three or four times in my life I've been starstruck. Yeah, we got to hear BB every night, mm. every night. Yeah, and I it get to great. hear you every night. It was fun, man. God, I don't even know where to start. Going back to Storyville, that was a real band thing for you. Like you put all your eggs in that basket for a while. Because I remember you yeah. telling me, "Man, I turned down a Rod Stewart tour to do this." Because you got a good we memory. Really, yep, I remember that. Yeah, I I did. Um, I just I'd finished. I did three years with John Mellencamp, mm -hmm. which was. Uh, alternated between like one of the greatest experiences in my life to one of the absolute worst experiences in my life. Uh, and it, you never <laughs> well, knew which I wanna day. Go, I want to hear about all you that. Never know, you never knew uh, what it was going to be until the day got going. But um, no, I mean, it was, at the end of the day, it was an invaluable, great experience. Everybody in the band was so cool. It was, a, it was an honor to play with those guys. But I have to say that, you know, at the end of that uh, three-year period, I went out and did three weeks with the Allman Brothers um, when filling in for Dickie Betts. And by the time we got done with that three weeks, I was, I kind of remembered, oh, I really, this is what I love about music. And, you know, I'd gotten away from, uh, even though we made some cool records and I learned, I mean, every day I learned something working with John. Um, I kind of had gotten away from that spirit of just just the joy of playing music and improvising mm -hmm. and um so i got back and i just i i just sort of you know john would probably say i got fired i would i say that i quit it doesn't matter uh <laughs> and then like right after that uh jeff golub who i'd become friends with when i was playing with ely called and said hey man i'm leaving rod stewart the gig is yours if you want. I mean, I can I, I can recommend you, and I'm pretty sure you got the gig. And it was it was more money than I was making with John. And um, at the very same time, Chris Layton called me and said, "Hey, we're putting this band together, and it's me and Tommy, the singer named Malford. You need to go check him out, and another guitar player named David Holt." And so I had this kind of this the T in the road, you know, which has been the theme of my whole music life is there's constantly these crossroads you come to and if you make the right decision you keep moving in the right direction and the um 
I just thought about it, and I thought if I go to with Rod, it's going to be I may be playing these country club rock tours for a long time. Mm-hmm. But the Storyville thing was like this could really be something. Yeah. I mean, this could be really special. Right. And it was the one time I think in my entire career where my wife told me I was she she thought I was crazy. And I, but I went with my gut and. We spent the next five years driving a van back and forth across the country. We made two records, never got, you know, our, uh, we had a song called Good Day for the Blues on our first record that got, it almost, almost cracked into, you know, I think we sold maybe 100,000 copies of that record, which was pretty damn good. Nowadays, it would be incredible. But um, it just never caught on. And there's a lot of different, I could point to a lot of different reasons for that. But, um, the, what I learned again, you know, the, um, I started writing songs and, uh, it was grinding it out. It was really grinding it out and kudos to Chris and Tommy who came from, you know, Stevie, you know, to, and and we were all in the trenches together. And even though we, never got to any you know a particular level of success where we could sustain it uh, the you know it's it, it these choices that we make along the way have so much to do with longevity and mm-hmm. do we get to keep doing this When I worked with Ely, Joe Ely, from 85 till I went to Mellencamp, one of the greatest lessons I learned from him, just watching him, was his um, approach to everything he did, really. Um, one of the most memorable nights I can remember is we, did, we were in the first European tour I ever did, ever, and with him, it was brutal. I mean, it was just like, you know, the middle of winter. We were driving around in a van that didn't have heat in it. And we got to someplace in Germany, and it was just like uh, the PA looked like it was a, you know, like a sure vocal master kind of thing. And <laughs> our sound man cobbled it together to where it worked. And we go out and play, and there's like five people. Wow. And the bartenders. And it was the most intense performance Joe ever I mean, it was the most, I've never, it was like, he just went after it with a vengeance from the first moment to the end of the show. And I'm like, this is real, man. This is the real deal. It's like, you know, okay, I'm going to make these five people go tell all their friends. And so that there were, there were countless experiences like that. And then musical, um, the musical things that I learned from Joe about dynamics, you know, how you can do within the course of a show and a set, you can play the quietest ballad in the world and still rock out, 
you know, I mean, the clash got, was really influenced by Joan. I mean, so just that breadth of dynamics and textures, um, and the level of songwriting mm-hmm. and the, 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 the songs he picked, the songs he wrote, and the choices he made, you know, not to take the easy, quick, you know, he was kind of, at one point he was on MCA, and he could have, you know, they were teeing him up to be the next Springsteen, and he just had a sense, in, you know, his intuition said, if I do this, I'm not being true to myself. Mm-hmm. And to this day, he's probably got the most, you know, he turned 70 last year, and he's got, he's probably working more than he ever did, and he's doing stuff that means something, and... um takes a lot of guts to be he's an artist you know i mean that's what it takes i mean to follow your heart and not go for the you know it's like we got to pay our bills but at Mm -hmm. the same time it's like do we do do you want to grow do you want to don't want to compensate this first times I ever saw you play was on Austin City Limits with Joe. Yeah, Joe Ely. That was, and you were using like a Dr. Z, some, uh, maybe it was red or something. No, else. that was a 100 watt Marshall. Was it? A red, okay. like 70, 69. I had a red oh. 69 super lead. And it, we were just talking about this earlier. How did we ever play that loud? You know. Well, I just started playing loud. <laughs> I didn't play I, loud back then. Well, I didn't I have a master volume in, and I had it on, on six <laughs> through a four twelve, and it was loud. But it was a good loud. Yeah, it's you know? warm. It's a warm, warm a warm loud. And uh, I mean, sometimes those amps, if you dial them in right, are don't seem as loud as like a super reverb, even because of the high end. Mm-hmm. Um, response i find that my marshall it feels it's got more girth to it and you don't have to actually be as loud but it feels louder the yeah. sensation of it it takes up more space it's got so much bottom it's denser and the chords and stuff just were fatter you know? yeah let's see we're kind of skipping around but that's cool um you're you're from kentucky originally right i think you had told me that once and yeah. what brought you to austin because you're known as like you know austin has this thing of the Austin gunslinger guitar thing, you know, and names pop up. It's always you, obviously Eric Johnson, Billy Gibbons, maybe David Holt. I'm missing some people, I'm sure, but those there's are so like many the big, great guitar yeah, players in this yeah. town. And, and I came here because everything I was listening to was happening here. I mean, I was listening to, to Ely. Oh, so you were listening to I him was listening you to got Ely him. big time mm-hmm. and uh, Luann Barton, mm-hmm. the Thunderbirds. Um, oh, I forgot Steve Rivon. Yeah, I mean, you know Stevie. Get that. And I ended up playing with Ely and uh, Luann. Luann was my first. Well, actually, my first gig in Austin was Lucinda Williams. Before anybody knew who she wow, was. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know you worked with Lucinda. Yeah. In fact, two weeks after I moved here, I kind of got that gig. I call. I just called the writer at the Statesman, the, the paper here, 
which was like a really naive thing to do. I said, Hey man, I just moved here. I'm looking for a gig. Do you know anybody? And he's like, well, I'm not a matchmaker, but if you're any good, I know this woman named Lucinda Williams and she's looking for somebody. So I, I, here's her number. Unbelievable. I know. I mean, I would never do that today. And especially it's a guy named Ed Ward. who's like really, you know, can be kind of he'd unfiltered and tell you the way it is. And, but, um, so for all you guitar players wondering how to get gigs, call your local paper. Don't do that. I don't <laughs> recommend that at all. But the but but you can relate to this. Um, like two weeks after I start playing with her, she's got a gig at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. I mean, I've barely been out of Kentucky. You know, I drove down to uh, to Texas and I saw you know the mid the mid south or whatever whatever you want to whatever you know Tennessee and everything. Right. But, so we load up and drive over there. We spend the night in Lake Charles at, at their friend's house that have a crawfish farm. And I mean, we ate between 10 of us, we ate about 80 pounds of crawfish. Oh, it man. was like, you know, till we couldn't walk and then crawfish omelets the next morning. And <laughs> that we, was get to, we get to yeah. New Orleans and we're in, you know, and staying in the quarter. And at our hotel, we got Richard Thompson, Grandmaster Flash, and Roy Orbison. What a and we're all hanging out, you know, the bands are all hanging at the pool. Well, Ed went with us, the critic, who happened to be a food critic, too. So, like, every meal, we're, we're going to, like, Dookie Chase. We're going yeah. to places off the beaten path. And, I mean, I I was like, my life just changed. I mean, I, like, I'm, you know, I can't even believe this is another planet, yeah. you know, New Orleans and especially the jazz and heritage festival, as you know, back yeah. then was a much smaller yeah. I think deal. It was more, I think it was more jazz blues and heritage. It, it, it is was now, actually. It was. Yeah. So that, that was magic. And that was, you know, with playing with Lucinda, then we got Derek O'Brien in the band as well. And then he got me in Lou Ann Barton's band. So all of a sudden I planted Antone's, two or three nights a week and I get in free and <laughs> you know getting to meet Hubert Sumlin and Jimmy Rogers and Otis Rush and you know they all came through there and played with the house band and Albert Collins and I got to play with Albert, Albert Collins and shot dice with Albert Collins at the night of my bachelor party and wow. you know it was just one one night one night got better than the next and Austin was a small town back then it was it was magic yeah, so you've been here ever since. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you and Kenny Greenberg knew each other, right? And, we, know. Kenny went, and I went to the same high school. Right, I remember you told me. All these things are coming back. I can remember things, David, that are like these facts. Sometimes I go, how did I remember that, this name? But you asked me somebody I met last night or like what time I need to be downstairs in the hotel. Like it's complete blur. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, a, I have a much better memory of the last 10 years than I do uh, for the previous 10 years, which has a little something to do with changing a couple of my personal habits. But uh, I, I find, man, it's like um, that's just part of the era we live in, you know, with the constant distraction, phones, of and all phones stuff, yeah. Instagram, everything else. It's like just finding time to play guitar. If I'm not mm -hmm. at a session or a gig, sometimes, you know, I have every intention of coming out here and practicing. I never even pick up the guitar because I get distracted. <laughs> the phone rings. People texting you, hey, David, can I come over and interview you for this little podcast? Oh, this, is a, this is a pleasure, man. <laughs> this is a pleasure.
get that gig with Mellencamp? Because you were down here, and I remember you telling me another thing I remember, that he wanted you to move to Indiana, and you're like, nope, I'm not leaving Austin. Well, that was at the very end that the the, uh, order came down that (laughs) we're not paying any travel expenses. (laughs) You need to move to Indiana. I mean, my wife had just bought bought her, and I had just bought her first house. You know, we like weren't even into the, we weren't past any interest payments yet. And I'm like, uh, well, I don't know about that. But um, going back to the beginning, when I lived, I went to Indiana University thinking wow. I was going to music school. And I did go to music school. I mean, I was took a bunch of music courses for a year, and I realized, man, this is not a guitar environment. And um, it, it really, the, the overlap between the jazz program and the classical program at the time were real... It was there were some blurred lines there, and I'm just I'm not that schooled, and I didn't read well, and it was just it wasn't a good fit. But I met all these guys that just graduated from the school of music, one of whom was Kenny Aronoff, Kenny Aronoff. and I joined their band, and we toured around the Midwest for a couple of years. And um, after that band broke up, I worked at a record store there in Bloomington. And John would come in a lot, and I, that was the first time I met him. But I knew all the guys in his band, and I knew Kenny. Um, right after I moved down to Austin, I ended up going back up and playing with this guy named Dan Ross, who co- uh, wrote a song of John's called Play Guitar. John yeah. got him to go out and open up his t- uh, tour. It was sold out, and it, but, he, but he kept it to like 6,000-seat theaters. Really smart, you know, it, he felt at that point in his life much better to go sell out, have it a bit, be a big deal than have two thirds full arena. Mm-hmm. And so I got to know everybody pretty well there. And then, um, got like 90, 1990, I could just get a call out of the blue. Apparently John decided he had some new songs and wanted to go record them. And Larry Crane, his, one of his guitar players wasn't available. And they said, can you come up and you want to come up and cut some songs? And I'm like, well, I think I do. Mm-hmm. And um, went up and did four songs that ended up on his Big Daddy record, and it went well. And I guess a couple months later, John and Larry parted ways, and they just called me and said, you want to be in the band? Did not, And there was no audition or anything. Mm-hmm. It was like, jump right into the fire. Southern Hemisphere And people are starving live right here and they're tearing down walls in the name of peace and killing each other in the middle east yeah we love and happiness have forgotten our names and if a while you live in love and happiness It's funny, that's sort of a common story I hear from guys I interview, friends that have, you know, big gigs. And it's like, was there an audition? No, I, was, I just kind of went in. I've never gotten all... a gig from an audition. Yeah. Anytime I've ever auditioned, I didn't get the gig. Yeah. It's a funny thing. I don't know what it is. And it's not, I just, it's just, I find that these, it's word of mouth. It's exactly, it's man. Word of it's mouth. all word of mouth, and people. The artist doesn't want to go through cattle call, and it's more work for them. No. It's, if you're lucky enough to know people that you know are in the 
Whatever Which is why, world. really, I mean, I mean, I get people asking me all the time. I mean, I get emails on Facebook. Man, I just moved to Austin. I'm wondering, I'm looking for a gig. And all I tell them, I mean, all I can say is, are you going out every night? Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to be, you got to go meet people, you know? And it's like, there are no shortcuts. I can't just plug you in if I don't know you. I can't put my, you know, I can't put my reputation online and say, hey, you need to hire this guy. Right. A, I don't. Even if you send me a, a CD and you sound great, you might be a I jerk. Hung out yeah, with you. yeah, right. And that's ninety percent of it. It really. is, it's man. A, you know, sometimes nobody wants to hang with you know, yeah, the guy who's an asshole on the bus or really negative, and because that's yeah. a lot of you know, or in the studio is even more revealing, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, that's good advice. Go out, play. And it's a different environment here now than it was back then. I mean, there were there were a lot of uh, situations available that i could go sit in more but really you know got like i really got really lucky with the lucinda thing and then meeting derek who really to me is one of the uh in terms of blues playing and especially blues rhythm playing and having a grasp of all the different nuances of styles and how to back up a harp player how to back up a singer a five-piece band with a horn section all these different things encyclopedic knowledge of the history of blues guitar not only did i learn so much from him but you know he got me into that scene and um but if i hadn't taken you know if i hadn't hung out on the town and made phone calls and gotten loose into thing none of this would have ever happened <laughs> it's so weird man like one decision you make it is can totally change the whole trajectory of everything and you look back 15 years later and you go how did i meet this well it was through this crappy thing showcase i didn't even want to do it didn't pay any money and it the the harmonica player or something who i don't even remember hooked me up with something it all it's you have true to be man good. I, played, I played gigs in indiana with chicken wire literally i mean <laughs> literally, literally literally i mean and you know vfws and in these little bitty towns in Indiana that were like, I'm like, what am I doing in here? This is like, but you know, I'm the best advice I probably have ever gotten. was when I was still in high school, I went into a record store. I was in, you know, karma records was this, was the, was the place in Louisville at the time. And, um, I saw this record and for some reason, it looked like I should buy it. Three ninety nine. It was three ninety nine. It was Pat Metheny, Bright Size Life, and I heard and I got this record, and I'm like, it was something that I had that was so different than anything I'd ever heard. I had no idea what they were doing, but I just knew that somehow deep inside it resonated with me. And I think it was that sort of Midwestern thing, and then Jocko's Magic, and the songs. Um, but then I start, and I really got, you know, really into his, in, into Pat. And again, I couldn't begin to play at that level. But I've always listened to stuff that was definitely above my pay grade and been inspired by it. And I went through this phase of sort of every chance I got going to see him play. And um, I did a Berkeley summer session five weeks when he played every night at uh, jazz workshop and I went every night and 
I took a, I went over to his apartment in Cambridge and wow, took man, a I didn't, I didn't realize you were a Matini fan. That's pretty cool. Took a lesson from him. It was 20 bucks. <laughs> that's a, that's a bro rate right and, there. Um, um, but you know, after all this time it's sort of like, you know, trying to, you know, I was just trying to unlock the secret code. What kind of stuff did you, did he show you? You remember any of those? We just played, we just played some stuff and, um, his whole comment at the time was just play more melody, more melody. Mm. And um, that was the focus, really. I mean, I couldn't play. You know, it's just like he wanted me to play less, 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 less and play more melody mm. um, when we were when when I was soloing. But a couple of years later, back, you know, I always wore my way backstage and I'm talking to him. And I was at, you know, I'm always asking him questions. He's so patient. He was so patient and generous with his time. And he finally, not, he didn't get like frustrated with me, but he just looked at me and he just said, man, just play gigs, just play gigs. <laughs> and that was like the best, most succinct advice I ever got. I mean, he, every crappy hole in the wall, you know, those country gigs with the chicken wire and everything else were, were I mean, cause you learn how to deal with people that want to beat you up because you looked at them the wrong way. You got the wrong haircut. Yeah. You learn how to deal, diffuse, to, you know, with situations. You, you learn all these other styles of music you wouldn't have ever mm-hmm. considered investing any time in. And, um, you know, the, the five years I did with Ely, 150, 200 gigs a year. That's when I became a musician playing gigs. Yep. Very, very, so I mean, like, if you're, you know, if you're if you're eighteen, twenty, twenty-five, whatever, take every gig, take every gig. You'll learn more in one gig than you will in a, you know in a, a month practicing or a book or something like that. Yeah, but well, you got to do that. I yeah. mean, you got to do you got to you got to get you got to practice and get your your thing together. But then you got to go play gigs. talk about your uh your style man it's really um you use these double stops and open strings and i hear a little bit of a little bit of billy gibbons texas in there but i hear a lot of david grissom in there i mean what did you how did you mesh all those things together well you know growing up in louisville it wasn't like there was this plethora of bands everywhere and um I just, you know, I would find like one song on a record or I would hear, um, I'd go out and hear like a local band and there would be a great guitar player that, you know, nobody ever heard from again. And it was these little nuggets, like there were things like I got this, um, you know, my my whole, I, the usual started with, you know, the Stones, then then B.B. King and magic sam and then into west montgomery so i had that progression but um 
I got into Norman Blake, a bluegrass guitar mm. playing a lot um, early on. And there was a lot of that going on around Kentucky, obviously. Um, but I got this Norman Blake record called Whiskey Before Breakfast. And that was, you know, I had been playing basically blues rock up to that point. And, um, you know, the Almond Brothers and um, kind of mi mixed with uh, Albert King and some Hendrix. But then I, so I heard Norman Blake and um, then I got like a Crusaders record called Chain Reaction mm. that Larry Carlton plays on. And there are like two songs on that record where he solos. Not, like, not the whole record, mm -hmm. but like two solos. And I, I mean, to this day that tone and his phrasing and everything that made a big influence on me. You know, the Beatles song, Gotta Get You Into My Life. There's one lick in that song that really influenced me. Um, my dad listened to Waylon Jennings, like almost on a nightly basis. And, the, you know, I heard Only Daddy That'll Walk the Line, and Wayne Moss plays this guitar solo in it that captivated me. Mm. Um, PBS had this the greatest unknown guitar player you've ever heard, the special on Roy Buchanan, where yep. he turned it on, and he lost interest in it, and I just was transfixed. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I saw Robin Ford and play with Jimmy Witherspoon on soundstage when I was like fifteen, um, and his whole jazz phrasing thing over blues, all these little things came together. Um, and I'm I'm leaving some stuff out, but like you know, even when I'm playing with doing my thing with the amp cranked up, and I mean, it. Hey, you want to like, you want me like, to play? I'll back some. Give me give me something to play, and you can just demonstrate. What do you want to? The air conditioner's hitting hitting my. That's okay, man. I'm kind of picky about this tuning thing. It's because I found that it. It definitely sounds better when it's in it, tune. I like it. When everything's in tune, the hair stands up on my arms just the right way. So, like, even playing like a kind of a blues rock groove, you know. You, you know, so keep, you keep playing it like, you know, the typical way I would approach, you know, like, my first, you know, like, I guess the normal first instinct, you know. So, so, but, 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 when I play that kind of groove, you know, I play. To me, that right there—that's Norman Blake. This little thing you did, that little—I mean, the whole open string thing, that, you know. That... Oh, I see. I yeah. mean, it's bluegrass. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It sounds so cool with a with a you know those kind of with distorted. Yeah. Those kind of that's seconds like, and stuff. That's Norman Blake. I mean, wow, really? I would have never. I mean, that's I where heard. that came from mm. um, to me. Mm. Um, and we could talk about open strings for hours. Yeah. But um, 
you know, I was really influenced by Lloyd Maines, who played pedal steel with Ely before I got in the band, mm-hmm. that overdriven thing. And I, that, and then Albert Lee in particular on that Dave Edmonds record, Repeat When Necessary, mm. the, the original version of Sweet yeah. Little Lisa. There's some footage of that on YouTube. Yeah, and it's not the final solo, um, but, you know, I've told the story many, many times. I learned the solo off the record. It took me about a year. And then I found out a couple of years later he was using a Parsons White B bender. <laughs> so I got between Lloyd Maines and that solo, this you know, the whole pedal steel And you thing, created all you your know, stuff, man. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm bending that note with my first finger, and these are yeah, 11s, that's a, you know? Yeah, that's a whole step bend. What are you, in D? I'm, I'm playing, I'm in A. And then when it goes to the, leading to the four chord. Yeah, nice. You know, uh, and that's a total B-string bender thing, but again, the... The fact that YouTube, you couldn't just dial everything up. Oh, I need to get a B-Vendor guitar. Um, so, you know, the the sort of the Heartland, Mellencamp thing, the bluegrass thing, the country bands I used to play in, and then that sort of pedal steel approach all just seemed to come together. And then listening to um, guitar players that played parts mm-hmm. and knew how to back up a singer and then learning how to play with another guitar player. I worked with Brent Mason a lot. Mm-hmm. And obviously on those, those sessions, he was the chicken picking guy and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more the rock guy and all those things. It just worked out really well. And, um, Nashville's funny, you know, once you play on a couple of records and if you do well, and maybe a song does well and every producer in town, who's I, I need that guy. Yeah. You know, and that that worked for about 10 years and then it's like there was a bunch of new guys that they yeah. needed those guys new producers and, so, and new new producers everything. yeah everything yeah. changes yeah. yeah you mentioned lloyd mains now isn't lloyd mains one of the singers of dixie chicks that's her dad right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i thought so yeah so that was a kind of cool connection later yeah, on because you worked pr- with the dixie chicks yeah were, i worked with them uh, you were their music director guitar their, yeah yeah band leader for for two year-long tours and then we did some other one-off tours and um, you was, and Audley, it, right? Audley was playing guitar too. Right? Audley did the second tour, yeah. Um, and which was which is great. He's a prince, yeah, sweetheart, God, unbelievable player, total team player. Again, all the right notes, all the right parts. Knows mm-hmm. when not to lay out, and just so easy to hang with. Just a really beautiful cat. Mm-hmm. But it was it was a little bit of a trip playing with Lloyd's daughter, having her be my boss. And we, he, Lloyd and I <laughs> joked about it a lot. He just said, "Hey, Grissom, how does it feel to have my daughter? My daughter is your boss." But um, the chicks were really fun to work with and unbelievably talented. Yeah, people. The, the the whole and then you know the whole idea of taking that and putting it in another context with an overdriven tone and right now we're playing so quiet that our overdrive tones are not as natural as i prefer them to be but, <laughs> it sounds great in here um, though it's uh i'm having to compensate a little bit because of our recording device but yeah, probably, what are you I'm playing through that's a marshall 50 watt uh, 72 you said yeah but i'm right now i'm just playing through my prs oh the prs 30 yeah, watt it. amp and it, the master volume is on one <laughs> <laughs> so uh it's 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 kind of choked down 
but it's still loud. It's still barking, man. Yeah. It sounds great. And, I, and I'm playing through your, what is this? A Tweed, Tweed Deluxe. Deluxe. Yeah. Beautiful amp. Yeah. Kind of yeah. hard to, it's like the Swiss Army knife. Of, yeah. I've always been a Tweed guy, you know, the blackface mm-hmm. thing. Like, so many guys rule on blackface Fender amps. And I've just been more of a Tweed. I, I need, I like the extra harmonic content mm-hmm. in it. Um, so, you know, when we developed this 30-watt amp, it was like try to get a hybrid of a Tweed Deluxe and an AC30 and, a, and this 50-watt Marshall, basically. Wow. It's those three things. Man, I want to play through that thing before I leave. Check it yeah, out. yeah, you should. And it, and it also will clean up and do – it will do sort of a, a black-facey thing but with a little more harmonic mm. action going on in it. And I find that even in the studio, especially with clean tones, if they have just a little bit of – just a little hint – of something, you know, saturation that they translate to tape better, at least the way I play. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, there's tons of guys that use, I mean, obviously, blackface or mm-hmm. the standard for so many people. But in the same way, like certain guys like Carl Verhayen, Verhayen I'm, mm-hmm. I apologize if I mispronounce your name, Carl. I read, you know, he uses two AC30s for his mm-hmm. clean sound. And if you just barely crank them on, you get this really super rich thing that is clean. Um, and I heard, you know, it's an interesting demarcation point for Tom Petty because I've Mike Campbell's one of my favorite guitar mm-hmm, players. Sure. And I noticed when they went from using AC30s to like little bitty Fender amps, yeah, that the, the guitar tones changed a lot. And it just, I mean, I love, I still love what they do, but the AC30 years were to me when it was just like righteous, you righteous know, tone. I know, I agree, and I. uh I heard through a pretty reputable source, although I don't know if it's true, but it, when I was working with Boss Kags, Boss's brother was a guitar tech, and he also worked for Tom Petty. And he told me, I asked him, I said, man, does Mike Campbell have like a wall of AC30s? He goes, he does, but he's not using anything. He goes, what it is is like a little tweed deluxe or something in a flight case with one mic on it, and that's the sound you hear in the arena. And that was back, you know, 10 years ago or something, so... It looked to me like on the latest tour because I am a huge Petty fan and I try and, and Mike Campbell both. Um, I think they're one of the great, truly great American bands with their own thing. Yep. And what a great symbiotic par- partnership between Mike and Tom. It looked like what he was doing to me was like a, some sort of Tweed Deluxe and then a Black Princeton, but running him through some cabinets to get more bottom oh, end and body. Yeah. That's what it looked like. I could be wrong. Yeah. But, uh, probably so. You know. I'm just I'm really drawn to players that aren't necessarily flashy that come up with great parts, hooky you know, parts, hooky parts and textures, and it's like, you know, Keith Richards, Mike Campbell, John Leventhal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, he's made some of the most exquisite records. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love this. And, and 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 those guys have been a huge 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 influence on me and jimmy page too you know the way he arranged guitars for zeppelin um i'm 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 every bit as enamored if not more so especially these days with the ability to play a great part come up with a great part layer and texture guitars it's just it it kind of i don't know i'm much more into that than somebody that's just blowing 90 miles an hour and even no, no matter how great they are Sometimes um, it's what you don't play. It is. Yeah, you know, I, I remember 
the first session I ever got to do with Kenny Aronoff, actually, there was a guy named Paul Franklin who was on the, who's like the greatest steel player worked in the world. With a bunch. Yeah, you know Paul Franklin. Yeah. And I was really young and green, and I wanted to impress everybody. And I'm on this session, and nobody would give me the time of day except for Kenny. And, and Paul was nice. And uh, I remember after like the second day. Paul came up to me and he goes, man, you know what? You're going to do really good. You're a great player. I said, thank you. And he goes, you know why? Because it's what you didn't play all mm -hmm. day. You yeah. didn't play hardly anything. You played the right stuff. Right. And you didn't play. And I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. He goes, yeah, you don't need to. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's Brent Mason and you don't need. You yeah. Know. yeah. And that was a really big lesson. And when I hear Indeed. guys like yourself and what you're talking about right now, it just clarifies all of it, man. You know, it's. it's yeah. And, you know, the whole session thing, as you know, um, you got to check your ego at the door. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, we hear, like, especially, I mean, I had like a 10-year run in Nashville from 2000, 2010, where I was, they were, I was getting flown up there two or three times a month to do master sessions. And it was, it was like awesome. Um, players are so great. You know, like the first couple of session on the speed at which it all happens up there uh, blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, but you, you, I got with it. And I, you know, I survived those first couple of sessions and kept getting called back. Um, but, you know, you know, there were so many times when, you know, as you know, you get a guitar vocal thing, you got to come up with the hook like mm -hmm. now. Like immediately, oh, they call it a sig the, lick, the signature lick, yeah. you know, the, lick? you know, or you got to have a vibe, or you got to yeah. you start playing. And if you have to ask, what are you looking for? You're in the wrong place. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, that's why you're getting paid. And so many times, I would come up with something that, like, I thought was like badass. And I'm like, how did I come up? You know, and even like, you know, there'd be somebody else in the room going like, yeah, and the producers like. I don't that no I that's totally not what I'm looking for. I need something else. And you, the right answer is I got you you're right. I hear you and you come up with something completely different on the spot and it might happen again. No. Try again. I mean like it'll come at you like that. Try try it again like and which is sort of like you need to get this now. And if you don't get it, you're not going to get called back. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to sort of have, you know, on the spot come up with three different signature licks is a pro you know it was a product of um i mean you have to do a lot of sessions gigs you have to have listen to a lot of different kind of music to be able to do that and um making records is not about us it's about the song and the artist yeah it's important to figure unfortunately that out. it also lends itself to you know um incestuous sounding records because you play the same thing you know after a while it's like how yeah. how, many, how creative can you get over four chords you know and it's the same well, and formula. it's getting much more like that i hate to yeah. you know i hate to sound like a curmudgeon or get too cynical about it but i listen to country radio now and it's really kind of the trend and i see it a lot here because i do a lot of this texas country stuff and oftentimes a producer will come in and bring sort of a track that he that he wants wants you know it, it, a reference. What, what we're doing it it's, it's a reference track yeah. and and sometimes it's kind of hilarious because it'll be 20 beats per minute different and they've worked out all these kicks and punches and i get i get eight bars of one 
you know, and it's like, well, and, and is again, the right answer is cool. I know what you're looking for, yeah. you know, and you just make it happen. Um, but there seems to be the songwriting trend now that's sort of been taken from hip hop and uh, more R&B stuff where the song is two chords, three chords, or even if it's a four chord progression, it never changes. Right. First yeah. chorus, first chorus. It never changes. Well, Tom Petty was criticized, but I kind of thought it was funny as shit, man. He, he was in New York or something. Or no, somebody interviewed him about country music. What do you think of country music? He goes, it's just bad rock with a fiddle. <laughs> so, well, it, you know, it, what you hear on the terrestrial radio, yeah, know, the radio a lot of that cause... does apply. But I can tell you that, you know, my experience there is that, a, number one, the session players are bad. Oh, yeah. Hell, bad to Absolutely. the bone. There and are it's, so it's... many amazing songwriters and artists there and they're starting to break the talent down, you know chris stapleton ridiculous um i mean there there are tons of people there that are and that's one of the beauties of the breakdown of the music business and the new model is that artists like that jason isbell um who i think is one of my favorite guys mm -hmm. out there songwriting the way the band sounds a lot like a young heartbreakers mm -hmm. you know they have a sound it, those those acts are able to kind of rise through the bureaucracy or the the, the net, right? Uh, the filter that sort of kept decided who's cool and who's not. <laughs> well, you want to play something? Yeah, sure. Let's see. Uh, what can I what can I comp for you? Uh, Give me something. Can we can play. Uh, we could play like a uh, you know, like a slower funky thing, or maybe sure. Just like, you kick something off. Man, just no. like so. Let's, let's just do this thing like in C sharp. C sharp. All right. The Spanish castle magic chord. So like eight bars, you know. Bars of that, okay. and then like a B section, um, sharp minor seven, E over G sharp, A. Okay. To, then to B the second time. Okay, let me make sure I'm in tune now.
Fun little jam. Yeah, I, mean, I like playing, and it's kind of cool, you know, all the open string thing. Again, it's like the, the having the flat seven, the B as mm-hmm. the open string. And a... Yeah. Yeah. Cool chord. Spanish Castle Magic. Yeah, that one or uh, what's the other one? It's uh, Tax Man. If you put the third in there, uh, seven plus nine. Or, yeah. Or is that Josie? I mean, it's like a couple of things. You know, you could. Just a, like a regular Mel Bay C seven chord, C sharp. With the oh, hu- yeah. Yeah. I like that voicing too. Hey, tell me about your new records and stuff you've been working on. I mean, I've kind of lost touch with what you've been up to. Oh, I've, had, I've done four CDs on my own, and um, I'm working on a fifth one at the moment. It's kind of been going very slow. Um, I've happened, had a good run of sessions lately. Yeah, and, what were you working on in L.A.? I did a Rita Coolidge record wow, out cool. there, which was like so, you know, the, it was really old school. We worked at Sunset Sound. Oh, I love that place. Bob Glob played bass and wow. this great drummer, Brian McLeod. And um, the days of working in the studio like that and taking a whole day to do two tracks, I mean, it's like that doesn't ever happen anymore, but... It was great. Rita was super cool. The producer, Ross Hogarth, picked some great songs. Um, other than the one I wrote, I, we did. she did cut one of, the song, one of my songs oh, with, nice. with um, a song I wrote with Chris Stapleton. Wow, and, nice, um, man. Which is always exciting. And um, That's going to be cool, being on a session and playing one of your own songs that you know is going to be on the record. Yeah, it, it was really special and really fun. Um, it was one of those sort of... Um, it's kind of a ballad and so the first verse and chorus is it's like you know 62 beats per minute and it's all acoustic me playing acoustic guitar it's a real pucker moment you know um it's you know as you as you know it's way harder to be to pocket things slower it's harder much harder to play slower which is so counterintuitive to what as kids we think we practice with the metronome to play fast and uh, it's it's the slow stuff that mm-hmm. you know with all that space but um what do you do when you go to la to do sessions you have gear there I just or borrowed borrow borrowed friend, call friends and borrow some guitars yeah the producer had a bunch of stuff prs sent me some things pete thorne and tim pierce were so nice to mm-hmm. lend me some stuff so it's a, a little bit you know you're it's i love having all my stuff but you make do with whatever i mean right. i can you know, if PRS sends me a guitar and an amp and I bring a pedal board, I can do 90% of the record oh, yeah. that way. Yeah. Make it work, man. Yeah. Your hands. Bring it, your hands. It, it really you. is. It really is. <laughs> I wish I wish it was all about the gear and then we could all be there. But, I mean, it's the eternal debate. I do find that, you know, the right gear does have a lot to do with being able to translate with what I hear in my head. But at the end of the day, you know, the first thing I do when I do a clinic or a workshop is – take my guitar and walk around the room my electric guitar not plugged in and let the people hear you know what it sounds like without an amplifier 
Yeah, it's really spanky. It's got a lot of volume. You've got to make the sound, you know, you, with your hands. You've got to, you've got, and the, the, the pickups are just a microphone on a singer, as Paul Reed Smith says. And so. I have a Paul Reed Smith. I, I play it sometimes. I don't know the model. It's a, I think it's an early 90s one or maybe a 93 or something. I changed the pickups years ago and put Gibson pickups. A friend of mine named Nick did it for me years ago. Yeah, the the they make they make really consistently good guitars, and I've had a signature model since um, '07 with them. Um, but I've played the guitars forever. We did a gig in Baltimore, and you introduced me to Paul Reed. Yeah, he was there at the gig. Yeah, and so and I've the, had mm-hmm. the good fortune to work with Paul, tweaking the guitars and designing some stuff. And so the guitar that I ended up the guitar that's my signature model is by far the most vintage inspired guitar they make. And um, I'm looking at this other one down here. Is that, is that that's an older pro- one? That's the prototype for my signature. It's, okay. We made two, one with a stop tail and one without. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. Gold this, so this this yeah. is a, a, a prototype that's, I think, tuned to open, open. Tuning, open G, which I use tunings constantly songwriting spur some different ideas and things songwriting and sessions i mean i'm when i when i do sessions i'm always thinking three you know three parts in my head you know how am i going to sort of arrange because i know they're going to want me to you get the track and then i stay out there and put on another guitar part and i'm thinking ahead and i found that between baritone guitars open tunings and capos i can cover a really wide Mm -hmm. range of things and one thing I do quite a bit is, I mean, I'll do, for instance, it just depends on the song, and you listen to the chorus and the influences, the the riff you want to come up with. But it's like playing in the key of E to me has become so cliched and boring that oftentimes I'll take a baritone guitar and tune it, or capo it to where I'm playing out of a G position, mm-hmm. or... I'll tune it to open E or I'll um, take a guitar that's tuned down the step and play out of F sharp just to try to get something different yeah. than the stock. I mean, I, open strings are such a huge part of what I do, but I, I mean, the key of E, I don't know. It's just, it just, it's just like a, a big, a big embossed invitation to cliches. Yeah. Well, there's only so many things you can do. <laughs> Which yeah, is crazy kind of because there's plenty you can do in any, but well, on guitar, it's easy to fall, you know, in the idiom that I play in, it's easy yeah. to fall back into certain things. <laughs> you know what? Remember one day you were telling me that you did a session with Ringo Starr. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It was a Kenny Aronoff hookup or something you were telling me? But... Yeah, I was uh, I was touring with Mellencamp, and it was 91, I remember because, I do remember specifically, and we were staying at the Bel Air hotel which is the nicest hotel i think i've ever stayed at and don was called kenny and said hey can your guitar player is your guitar player available today and we had a day off oh perfect and um kenny was like kenny was doing sessions nonstop on the tour with john and john was like getting ticked off about it and kenny was like well bro you get don was wants to know if you can get over to Conway and I like took a cab over there and took a one guitar I didn't even have a pedal board at that point I mean with Mellencamp I used a TC Electronics booster 
Uh-huh. And you know, I'd go to a session and everything would be strewn across the floor or whatever. But they rented some amps. I brought my acoustic guitar and electric guitar. So I get there and it's uh, Mike Landau, mm-hmm. Hutch Hutchinson. And I can't remember. There was probably a keyboard player in me. And so I found out all of a sudden I'm playing acoustic guitar. And we tracked, I think, three songs that day. And Ringo cut live with this. Oh, wow. And, man. Uh, that's I'm, ironic I'm, that a drummer gets you the call and then he's not even on the session and it's Kenny Aaron. Yeah, it's Kenny, yeah. but you know, but it's a Ringo, Ringo record yeah. and, I, and and so I'm like sitting in the booth looking straight at Ringo in the that Silver Pearl Ludwig kid oh, thinking this is just like Star Trek. You know, so I just got beamed into this room. Just like the Lucinda thing in New Orleans, man, like it another is, you know, chapter. Or, or playing know? with the Almond Brothers. I mean, standing yeah. next to Greg Almond, you know, playing Dreams and you know, amazingly cool experiences that i'm so grateful to have been able to do but i you never thought in a million years i'd be playing acoustic guitar on a ringo record but he was really cool really gracious you know i did one one song i doubled what i played and he walked out into my booth and said let me shake the hand of the man that played that perfect acoustic guitar part and wow you know i'm just the whole time i'm just like trying not to germ him you know like 40 million questions and um um, but it was, it was really cool. Really oh, that's cool. nice. Man. That's, you know, that's, I've never played a Ringo, but I've had some, some memories where you, you, you pinch, pinch yourself moments, yeah. a lot of them, you know, it, yeah. it's sort of, it's sort of, uh, what's the word, um, dilutes the, the, the lows, <laughs> you know, cause yeah. it's like what we do is like sometimes like, like, yeah, it's extreme highs and lows. It, it is. You know, but my friend Greg Morrow, uh, one of the top, you know, one of the best drummers I've ever played with, and one of the main guys in Nashville. He, his quote is, "Even when it sucks, it's great." And mm-hmm. I think that's a great attitude to have. And it's, but yeah, man, you know, um, just like like right now, we're sitting at your place. If you would have told me back in whenever it was '98 or whenever we were hanging out, like, man, you know what? You're gonna be in town with Hall and Oates. Yeah, and I'm gonna be like, we'll hang, and like you can come over, and you're gonna do this thing called a podcast. Be like, what? I know it's crazy. Isn't you it? don't know. Yeah. I mean, we're still we're still doing it. I don't know. It's yeah. like I, every day I wake up, I'm like, I can't believe that this is what I've done my whole life. You know, and not only that, you're very well known and respected for it. It's not like you know, you're like an, even even as beautiful as it is just to play music for a living as an quote anonymous kind of cat. It's even better that you know you, you're known for your thing. You know, That's... well, I've been in such situ- I've been I've put myself in situations and lucked into situations where I've been allowed to sort of grow and find my thing, and uh, that is not to be you know there's there's a there is an element of luck involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, somehow it, it, it's sort of surreal. And I mean, I mean, I did, I've done four records with Buddy Guy, you know, mm-hmm. like how did that happen? I know guys, I mean, like there are five, there are 15 people in Austin that are better, more authentic blues players than me. But, you know, again, that's not necessarily what, you know, you know, the, the being, having the luck to have done this broad range of, of styles you know i get called to do that and yeah i know how to play the you know i understand the music but i can expand on it and adapt and i think that's a lot of what really sums up what a session player has to be able to do right well real quick 
I'm playing through your for the gear heads, which I never do this, and I always forget. This pedal I'm playing through. What is it? You let me play through one of your pedal boards, the Jetter Grissom Jetter. Yeah, and you're playing through one too. I, yeah, I don't have it turned on because I'm just. I mean, my amp is in the other room. Um, cool sound. It's a. It's an overdrive that is sort of in between, like it's a clean boost and a tube screamer. You know, a tube screamerish kind of. Those types of distortions to me have always like removed bottom and, and boosted mid. and boosted mids, and then I'm always turning the tone control almost all the way off. And so this. I like about this is that it keeps all your low end and then you can dial the gain back, you know, to where it's barely any adding any gain at all. So I noticed that because I had to actually add some yeah, highs to it. Um, and you can take like it's it's an amazing pedal that I found. And, and one thing that has been really useful, and I think you're kind of doing that now, is like when you have to play super quiet, you know, I could take a Blackface uh, Deluxe and turn it up to two and then use that pedal just to put harmonic richness into it and a little overdrive not making any louder but that and just for that alone it's fantastic but yeah that sounds great man yeah. very musical brad jetter is uh, really really uh doing doing great stuff and um that was one of the main things we did was dial back the gain but if you turn it all the way up or the taper on the gain pot if you turn the gain all the way up, you're going to get a lot of gain. But I just, I prefer to be able to. So it's sort of subtle first half, and then it goes up. It, then like it goes exponential up a lot. more. A lot, curve. but I'm but I, the way I set my amps up is that when I turn down and play softer, it's a clean tone, yeah. and when I turn all the way up and play hard, it sort of starts to crunch. So I don't need tons of gain right. added. Yeah. And there's, you know, that's why, like on some boards, I have a clean boost and two different overdrive pedals. And I've been, you know, sometimes I turn two of them on at once if I really have, if I just prefer that to the channel switching amps. It works better for me. Well, I think we covered a lot of stuff, David. You know, man. I'll talk. I'll talk. I'll talk to you. That's cool. I wish I had more time. I have to go. I want to, if you have time, we'll grab lunch. And I have to go do a sound check. But, man, I feel like I've wasted. Yeah, I get to go. It's yeah. I, it's not like I don't want to do it. It's just what were you I'd saying? rather hang here with you and you know talk shit about guitars. Yeah, stuff. we haven't even gotten to acoustic guitars and no, old we, guitars. I feel like we just warmed up. I just warmed up. Yeah, me. Yeah, me yeah, too. Yeah, you got like killer man. Wow, look at this collection. I got some. Really nice. You know, oddly enough, is the I don't play. I'm not a great. I don't consider myself to be a a great acoustic player, but I, I have to, I do play on records a lot and I've probably got more cool old acoustic guitars than electrics. Yeah. Those are sweet too, man. Like it's hard to, some of these cases aren't the correct cases, but there's some neat stuff in here. Yeah. I see your, your ukulele thing. I got one of those two from true fire and I, I'm yeah, still trying to figure out how to, what to use it on. I've messed with some tunings on it. talking over that
I can pull and get like a single sort of Sounds good with the single. Want to plug into the, the, this amp? Well, I think we got plenty, and thank you so much, David, for your time. It's been great, and, man. Yeah, nice, to, so nice to see you and uh, have a relaxed chat about relaxed chat and jam, little jam. Music. And, well, if you have time, we'll grab lunch. So, thanks for listening, and yeah, I guess that's it. Adios. Adios. There you have it. If you're still here, I hope you enjoyed that one. Thanks so much for listening. Love your comments, reviews. Take care. See you next time. And if you're interested, stay tuned. There'll be the little jam, well, playing through his pedal board at the end of this, of David's pedal board, just trying out some things. All right, take care. He just pulls right. And I'm gonna I'll turn it up for you. Okay, now I'm plugging into the PRS amp. It's like it gets stopped up and then it's just well that's uh, not loud i'm just no it's not that it's it's just uh no it's lately it's been
only playing through a 412, man. 